Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
All right, welcome back to the Heavy Metal Mayhem Radio Show. It is March 19th. The year is marching on. I can't believe we're almost at the end of March already. One more week to go. Ah, it's going really fast this year, I'm telling you. All right, we got a great show for everybody tonight. Gene Hunter and Gary Ryan from New York Fury. I remember seeing these guys back in the 80s at Lamar's. They were a killer band. We'll be talking to them in about a half hour or so. We were supposed to have Claude Schnell on tonight. I spoke to Claude about an hour or so ago. He had a late flight back from New York, got delayed in Atlanta. So he's not going to be up to doing the show tonight. But we'll have him on probably next week. We'll reschedule it. Because I think one of the guests next week can't make it. So we'll have Claude on next week. I do apologize about that. It was a last minute thing. And I was talking to Claude the whole weekend. And I really wanted to do it. And he apologizes. But the flights and everything just kind of took him out. So... What can you do? You call on the king of Lodi, New Jersey, Steve Zing from Sam Hain and Danzig and his new band, Black 29. We'll be talking to Steve in the second half of the show and playing some music off his new record. So that's a quick step in right there. <laughs> Appreciate that. All right, right there, T.T. Quick, go for the throat. T.T. Quick were like the house band that Lamar back in the 80s. You could pretty much catch them at least once a week, if not every other week, sometimes twice a week. And they were a killer band. Everybody knows Mark is the lead singer of Except Today. He's been doing that, I think, for over 10 years now. It's a long time. And whew, I tell you, they were a great band. David DiPietro, one of the finest guitar players out there ever. Zach Wilde's guitar teacher, he taught a lot of people. I was lucky enough to catch him live many times in the 80s, but about eight or nine years ago, and it might have been longer than that, they had that uh, benefit concert for Sandy out in New Jersey. Freehold and T.T. Quick got back, to that, got back together to do that show with Twister's sister. Uh, uh, the uh, Raven was on the bill. Uh, the Rods played. It was a great night. Had a good time over there. I think Anvil was also on that bill also. All right, let's get back to the music here. We'll save our demolition segment for the second half of the program. Uh, we'll play a couple more tunes before we get to the thing. Let's do this light, and then we see what we got here. I'm all confused here today because I got people texting me and calling me with questions. They ask the guys in New York Fury, and I'm trying to answer them as I'm talking on the show, but they're just going to have to wait because I can't do two things at once. My wife will attest <laughs> to that, but let's do some uh, Leather Bitch, his kill instinct.
All right, we started out that set with Leather Bitch and Killer Instinct, a great band from out west. Check them out if you haven't. They've been around for quite a few years now. I uh, have a few records out, a really solid act. And I had to play Ozzy. It was 41 years ago today that Randy Rhodes died in that plane crash. And that was you looking at me, looking at you. Nobody had better B-sides than Ozzy back in the 80s. Actually, that came off of the Crazy Train single, which was released before the record in 1980. And that was the B-side on that one. So just an amazing... Amazing B-side over there, like all they were. I mean, when he even had Jake Lee in the band, all the B-sides were great that he put out. None of them were ever on records. They were only on the singles. It was a nice little treat that they did back in the day. And after that, Night Ranger with a touch of madness. Everybody knows what a massive Night Ranger fan I am. And, you know, it kind of links together because, you know, Randy Rose passed away, you know, 41 years ago today. This week, Bernie Tomei passed away two years ago. And Bernie was a really good friend of mine. He was on the show many times. I used to love talking with Bernie. We had a lot of great conversations on and off the air. And I remember when Ozzy played at the Ritz, you know, I was, they were coming through town. Randy should have been on that show, but he, like I said, he passed away a few weeks before then. Uh, Bernie filled in for a little bit, then Bray Gillis joined the group. And I didn't know who Bray Gillis was back in the day. I was like 15 years old when they were playing at the Ritz and. I remember like a year later watching American Bandstand on Channel 7. Uh, it used to be on like every Saturday morning, you know. <laughs> After the cartoons were well, when you were young, I used to watch American Bandstand. I'm, I'm watching it and I'm looking at this guy and I'm like, why does this guy look so familiar to guitar play? I just couldn't put my finger on it. Then I realized he was a guy who played on, you know, the Speak of the Devil record from the Rich Ozzy. And that's what turned me on the Night Ranger. I was a big fan of theirs ever since then and still am today. And I'm glad that they're out there playing. I caught them a couple of years ago. They play like every year at Epcot and Disney World at the, at the, Flower, at the Flower Festival or something they call it, Rock the Block. I don't remember, but they have a lot of bands that I was able to see them a few years ago. Unfortunately, they, they did an all-acoustic set, which I was a little disappointed because I wanted to hear them rock out. But we went to the afternoon show and, you know, the night ones when they did everything electric. But still a great act. All right, let's get on one more tune. We'll play some New York Fury after that. Then we'll wait for uh, Gary and Gene to call in. Uh, this is a band called Dezark. I mean, they were out of Houston, Texas. They had one EP in 1986. Nothing else ever came out from the band after that. But I thought they were a pretty good band, and it was a good EP. So uh, check it out. Let me know what you think. This is called Out on the Streets.
The Danger I Face. I know the guys were just on the line. They probably couldn't hear me because the song was playing. Uh, but let me connect them again right now if I can. I'll dial them. Your call has been forwarded to an automatic voice message system. Nine one seven. All right, let's wait a couple of seconds. I think they're trying to call into the show again, so we'll just give them a, a second or two. But. New York Fury is such a great band from back in the 80s. I'm thrilled that this record finally saw the light of day. What a bunch of great music from back then. So, let's see. Are they calling back now? Let me get them on the line if I have to. Bear with me here a second. Hey, Gary, are you there? This is Mike. Gene Gary, are you there? Yeah. 
Okay. Hey, Mike. It's Gene. How, you How doing, are buddy? you? I'm doing great. I I I think you can hear me because the music was so loud. <laughs> I think you can hear me when you called in before, but I'm glad I got you on now. Okay. We thought we got disconnected or something. No, no, yeah. no, it is. I used to know how to put you guys into a private room so I could tell you, hang on, there's a song playing. I forgot how to do it. I have to really go back to the manual and read it again. Oh, it's fine. <laughs> uh, but listen, I'm glad you're on here now. If Gary wants to call in, he can call in on the same number. I can connect us both. I'm here. Oh, oh you're there. Oh, I'm sorry. I, didn't, I, didn't, <laughs> I know it was in the background. All right, what's up, guys? How's everything going? All good. Gary's in Staten Island. I should have told him to come over to my house. We could have did it together right here. Uh, yeah, I would have. <laughs> that would have been great. Oh, you're, you're in Brooklyn, right? No, I'm in Staten Island. I've been out here for like 35 years now. Oh, where are the islands are you? Now I'm in New Dorp. Originally, I moved to Great Kills uh, when I first came out here. I bought a house in New Dorp. Um, I grew up in New Dorp. I was down Tyson Lane. Okay, I'm, I'm running from 1st Street off of New Dorp Lane. Very close. I, I just said like a couple of the wire on. We could probably do it that way. Better get get a better connection. <laughs> well, listen, guys, I I am such a big fan of you guys. When I heard that you know this music was going to come out after all these years, it blew me away. I mean, forty years ago. I mean, did you ever think this was going to happen? No. Yeah, we we we, we had no idea. You know, <laughs> it, it's even, kind when, of... even when Gene called me to do it, we figured, yeah, this will be fun. You know, we you know kind of like put it out there and let's see what happens and we never dreamed in a million years of be all over the world and doing so well and the uh, online radio market is incredible yeah everybody's got a show yeah. today and it helps out uh, but I'm just happy that it is out there people can finally hear it that you know especially people that weren't around back then yeah right. it, it, that, that was the one thing that we didn't have We, you know we had uh, cassettes and press kits and stuff and that stuff went to magazines and fans and they kind of networked it over the last, you know, 30 years or so. So, you know, we, we had no idea that people in Peru and Colombia and, and Japan and Germany and all these places, the UK, there was a fan base for this genre, which we knew existed because, like, guys like you were into it, we're into it, but we didn't realize it was brewing. And we were the band, everyone says, was the dream band. They, 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 they always dreamed of having an actual product from us. And now we have it out there. And, it's doing amazing. I mean, we, we just got stats again from a month and a half ago, and again this week, Japan sold out, Germany, uh, Spain, a whole bunch of places all around, and it's uh, it's amazing. So, you know, they're replenishing, you know, those orders now. I mean, it's being sold everywhere, even on eBay. It's like crazy. That, that's got to make know, you feel over. good. It has to make you feel good. And I, John in the chat room was saying he remembers Gene selling the, the demo cassettes on Route 1 of the flea market back in the 80s. <laughs> Yeah, and he said, "Man, he had the best." And the thing was, he goes, "Man, he had the best hair ever." <laughs> oh, thanks, man. That's funny. It, 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 you know, and that's how we networked back then. Like even even yeah. I, I collected like uh, live bootlegs, right? I remember picking up a live album uh, of Kiss from the Lick It Up tour, and it was packaged amazing. And I and I showed it to Vinnie Vincent, and he loved it. And he goes, "Oh, can you get me one?" I just gave him mine. You know what I mean? And uh, they were into it too. And Iron Maiden, I, I would pick up like an Iron Maiden picture disc or something that was, you know, maybe wasn't licensed or something. But, you know, that's what happened with Fury. And, and now it's happened to us now after the record came out. When it sold out in Japan, it was uh, bootlegs already, uh, uh, 12-inch, two different picture disc singles. And fully packaged and everything. And we're like, me and Gary going, how the hell did that happen so fast? <laughs> you know? They don't waste any time, people. I tell you, they jump right on it. 
Yeah, it's uh, crazy. Well, I'm, I mean, let's kind of go back to the beginning for a lot of people that don't know. I mean, the band actually goes back to the very, very early 80s. I mean, I think you guys were doing stuff before there even was really a scene developing back then. And how did it all come about? Around 80, 81, I guess? Yeah, it was about, uh, for me, it was 1980. And uh, it started off as a three-piece band. And we, we, we played, like, block parties and uh, bars and, and clubs. We had to have, like, a chaperone with us. And we were doing like, we were really young at the time, like 14 year old kids, but we were playing and you know, it's not, I'm not saying in a break, but those guys at 14 were great players. We were, we were able to do Zeppelin and Sabbath decades before even the musicians we know now, uh, that are just doing cover bands. Now we were just kids doing it. You know what I mean? And, and, uh, that's where we, my love for playing out, uh, you know, came to be, but I, I after a few years of doing that, I had all these songs written, and I wanted to do originals. And the Oscar and Brian, who were with me at first, uh, they didn't. They, you know, they were more into the cover thing. And I was like, Nah, I would rather play my own music. You know, you know, those guys already made it with their music, and it's great. But I, I was like more of a creative spirit, and I, I so I started putting together ba a band based on the original music. And I always wanted to have a big stage show because when I would go to concerts, you know, back in the day, like you, you talking about Lemoore's and T.T. Quick and all those bands, we used to go see them all. And I said, you know, I want to see a band that, you know, that's different than every band that's out there. No matter if, if it's a club or an arena, I want to see a show. And uh, and that's what we did. We, I put the New York Fury together and full state show, and we came out like gangbusters right from day one. That's so true. We, you know, no, I'm sorry, Jim, get it finished. No, you go, go ahead. No, I was going to say, you know, originally Jimmy Patrick was singing with the band. He was the original vocalist before Gary came in. So let's kind of pick up like where Gary came into the group. And Gary, I'll let you start it from there. How did you guys hook up together? Well, I was um, I was playing out with my original band one night on Staten Island. I don't know if you remember the old Paul Dillon. Oh, yeah. If you, if you uh, Okay, so I was playing there one night, and um, Dee and Gene were in the crowd, and uh, they were they were in the process of looking for a new lead singer. Um, they just came up to me at the end of my show and said, would you be interested in checking out a, a band that, you know, is on the verge of uh, doing really well? And, you know, at that time, I was really trying hard to make it. And I was like, sure, I would check it out. You know, I, I didn't want to close any door. I didn't want to leave all doors open. And one thing led to another. I met with Gene. And one thing that turned me on to wanting to do the project was Gene had this fire. Like, he was, he was the hungry you know, I said, wow, this kind of reminds me of me. So long story short, we, uh, we decided to, you know, get together, start rehearsing. We ended up recording the songs. We recorded the demo uh, at West West Side Music. And um, that was 30 years ago. Um, I personally believe that, you know, the music scene changed at that time. So, you know, kind of, it kind of fell off at that time. And then here we are, you know, so I... Ended up, you know, doing covers for the last 30 years. And then, um, same thing. Recently, over the summer, Gene called me up and said, hey, we got an opportunity to finish this and put it out. And here we are. So basically, they saw me at a show, recruited me in at that time, and um, we did the demo together, and um, that's basically how we got together. That's great. Gene, yeah, was, was Gary, Jimmy like on the way out at that time? And was Jimmy like was it just not working out with him at that time that you were looking for somebody new? Well, to be honest, if you know, if we're going to be honest, I, I mean, the release has everybody on it, 
that was in, you know, not everyone's either mentioned or they're playing on this release. But in terms of Jimmy, we, we felt, you know, uh, since the, he was pretty much a problem from the beginning uh, in terms of work ethic and showing up on time and remembering the words and that kind of thing. And Fury was kind of like a, a band that carried the singer in a way because the show was so dynamic that, you know, I, I always, I never bank on just one guy in a band. I think the whole band should pull their weight. But what happened was we landed a deal a very, very big indie deal at the time. It was a guy that was starting a Casablanca-type record company. And it was a half a million dollar deal. And uh, we, put, we had to do one show at the Stone Pony. And sadly, uh, you know, for me, I, I lived with the, the manager. It was a terrible wreck. I wound up not getting in the car with him, and he wound up dying after our Stone Pony show. And it locked up the half a million dollars. It was a big mess. But... You know, I, what happened was Jim was already, they were thinking of replacing Jim back then. So we were already on the hunt for, a, 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 a you know, the right guy. And when I heard Gary sing the first time, I go, that's the guy with the voice. Because when I heard him, he sounded like as good as Steve Perry. I was like, this guy has a great voice. I go, and he understands the art of originals and stuff. Now, you know, Jimmy was like a Mike Tramp type of singer. And, you know, he did the job that we needed at that point. But going forward with the deal, you know, uh, he showed very little remorse when the manager passed away. And yeah. that was like the thing that made me say, okay, you're done, you're out. You know what I mean? Because, you, know, you know, the half a million didn't matter. The man's life did. You know what I mean? So we never really talked about this publicly. This is the first time I'm actually saying it. But now that we have the record out and Gary is the lead singer, you know, uh, I feel like I should at least come forward with that. You know what I mean? I wish all those guys the best of luck, whatever they do. But, you know, Gary was my guy that I, that I just gravitated towards. Uh, from the first time I heard his voice, you know what I mean? And, uh, you know, so basically that's the story of Jim, where Jim was let go. So that's basically what happened. Yeah. And, you know, what Gary says is 100% right. You are extremely driven. And you think about it, you know, the mid-80s, the scene was exploding at that time. You guys are still kids. You're teenagers. But yet, you know, most kids starting bands back then and say, hey, you know, I just want to get up on stage. We'll meet girls. We'll have a couple of beers. We're going to have a party. You guys are so business-oriented from the very beginning. Like, you knew... What had to be done to get to that next level? I mean, everything was in place for you guys where there was no questions or no second guesses. You knew right away, and you actually went with your other band would say, hey, let somebody else worry about that. I just want to get up on stage and have a good time. You really took the whole music business into perspective and put it into the music and the stage show. Yeah, to me, you know, you only got one shot sometimes to do something as, as big as we did. Now, for an unsigned band... Uh, to this day, there's no one I've ever seen in the history of rock and roll that did the level of what Fury did. Now, me unsigned, without the millions of dollars, without MTV, without a Doc McGee and all that. Because people don't realize how much money it takes to put into a band, to break a band in the industry. You know what I mean? So we, we were doing it without any of that help, and then we finally were on our last legs, and that's when we signed the deal, and then tragedy hit. So it kind of like set everything in a very crazy, bad way. You know what I mean? So it was kind of hard. But, yeah, but from the day one, that's what we did. We wanted to come out and hit people with a, an impact, you know, uh, that they, they'd never seen, at least in a club, an auditorium, on that level, you know? We wanted yeah. to be with the big guys. 
Yeah. I, I don't blame you. If you don't dream big, it doesn't happen. I mean, like, you know, you guys had the look, you had the music, you had the stage show. When I look at all that, sometimes I'm saying mid-80s, why aren't these guys out in California where that was kind of happening? But then also you would have been the new kids on the block that they're also fighting into a group of people that are already out there and established. So maybe that really wasn't the best idea or the best move to make either back then, was it? Something that you guys considered? Yeah, well, there was a point where I said I wanted to get the band maybe to the West Coast, and but the New York scene, like we felt, you know, with guys like Twisted Sister and Kiss and bands like that that made in New York scene, we had our own scene. It definitely was more brutal and more, it was a much harder scene because New York's a tough audience, you know what I mean? Yep. You, you, know, to, you know, when we would play out of state, the reaction would be so much better. You know, in, in New York, we we got a great reaction, but you have a lot of the bands that were competing with you and they're standing there with their arms folded. It was that type of environment. And, and L.A. was... Uh, totally you know it was a, it was a machine whoever played the sunset strip and they had a blonde singer they were getting a deal so i felt it was like overkill to you know at the time with so many bands so we tried to do it here and and we almost got it we almost secured everything but sadly it didn't work out i mean we, we were the first band to play the intrepid the uss intrepid that's right and then six seven years this uh kiss copied it basically and they did their launching for their reunion tour and then twisted sister did it when we and actually my other band called the souls we played the first show with twisted sister was called bent brother uh they they couldn't use the name yet but that, yeah but when they came out they they used the intrepid as well as the launching you know and uh it's just you know we were ahead of the game but it, i think maybe if we maybe would have went to california maybe we would have secured a, a deal faster maybe you might be right we just don't know at this point well, getting a deal back then wasn't an easy thing for any band to do. And, you know, when you have a half a million dollar offer on the table and it's a startup label, you're right. It was like a Casablanca type story where, you know, you're in there from the, the ground, you know, you're with them in the beginning and they're going to work on you and build you up because you want that support. I mean, but was there any other offers before that that you passed on to take this one? Well, the, the, we did have offers. As soon as we came out, uh, famous bands that were up and coming and metal bands that had management approached us. And they wanted to manage Fury and secure a deal. But when, when, when we went to go meet with these people, the contracts were like no publishing. They wanted uh, a lot of the merch money. And the thing at the time is we already had, you know, we're going to get you photo sessions and a stage. I go, we already have all that. We have everything that we need. All we need is the distribution and a video and on TV. I go, if you could guarantee me videos on MTV, because I knew that was the way to break into the American market overnight. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just That's what you needed back then. That was the big platform. So that's why you have these bands that are one-hit wonders. They're still touring off of one song, you know, because they had an MTV video. So that's what I was uh, searching to get. And what happened was we held out, we held out because we already had uh, three, $400,000 worth of money into Fury. Uh, so this extra half a million, we were already, we, you know, they, a label wouldn't have to buy like Atlantic Records. They wouldn't have to buy our show, our stage show, our equipment, uh, our stageware, our photo sessions, and the promotion that we were doing all those years. That was already a given. You know what I mean? So we we needed to get just the video and MTV, and and that's what we were going to do with Dan. He had the idea to film two videos with me and 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 go right for the marketplace, use the money correctly. Yeah, yeah, and he passed away, sadly, like I said, in the car accident. Thank God, you know, you you lost him, but you weren't in the car, which is a good thing, too, in a way, because you could have been a part of that, thank God, but you weren't. And 
things move on. And, you know, Gary, after that happened, then, you know, Dan passed away in the car accident. I mean, where do you feel the band is at at this point in time? Do you feel like you're starting over again, looking for new management, new record labels, or was it just such a thing that it kind of broke the band, you think? Well, it's funny because we never, again, going back to what we said before, we never thought that this thing would take on a set of legs like it has. Like, you know, um, it really grew pretty quick. Um, when Gene called me again to do it, um, or he actually didn't call me to do anything. He called me to say, I just want you to know that the album is going to be released. And he goes, I wanted you to hear it from me. And, and is that cool? And I said, absolutely. You know, this is great. And then, um, then you know, then long story short, the album came out. And, um, you know, again, this wasn't something that we were looking to do or looking for. It kind of came to us in a way. Gene called me. The, the record label was looking for Gene. They reached out to him. And said, hey, you know, we knew about you guys. We want to get you on this label. We're revamping 80 stuff from years ago, bands that almost made it. We want to put albums out. So Gene jumped on it, got in touch with me, put it out. Um, as far as taking it further now, who knows what can happen? I mean, the thing is that we talked about doing some shows here and there, which, which is a very good possibility because of the way of the attention this is getting. Um, we could do it. I've been playing out every weekend for the last 30 years anyway, so I'm still active as far as doing shows. Um, so for me, it, it, you know, it, it would be it would be something that could actually happen. As far as management goes, I mean, who knows what can happen? I mean, I think Gene would be um, someone to ask more about that. He's a, he's a little bit more on the business end of things than I am as far as management goes and you know uh, we all we all working on another album because of this which is great um because if you're an artist you just love, you got an art if you're a painter you love to paint if you're yeah. you know if you know so i love even though like i hadn't really recorded or done religion um religion <laughs> originals in years um when gene called me and told me this was happening and we were like let's do another album sure i'd love to paint again you know i'd love to get in the old car and start it up and drive, you know. Um, as far as where it's going to go, I think Gene would know better than me at this point. Uh, I, I'm leaving every door open. That's all I could say. If something happens where Master comes and says, hey, you know, you guys have something here, uh, we want to take it further, I'm sure Gene and I would get together and put our heads together and, and do something cool, you know. Uh, but right now, we all working on another album because we have a lot of material that we want to get out there. Um, and... Um, you know, so hopefully, you know, I, I feel the music right now is speaking for itself. Um, you know, they put it on; people are people are responding to it. I think that's really cool, and and it makes it worth your while. It makes it worth all the time you put in. Absolutely, um, I, I can't I, say enough about I can't say enough about the fans that have been supporting us. It really, it's it's a nice feeling, and especially family and friends are getting behind me. My wife, my kids, they're, they're all behind it. They love it. You know, they're all. I keep getting calls all day. Hey, I heard you on the radio. This is incredible, <laughs> you know. I got cousins listening. I got family, you know. So it's been great. It's a nice run. I mean, I don't want it to end, that's for sure. But, you know, hopefully um, it takes on a life of its own and it continues on. I think it's already so. taken on a life of its own. And, you know, Gary, well, I got you on. Connie Plum, I think, is one of your top fans. I've had a couple of questions for you guys. So I get the. She wanted to know when there's going to be new music. You already answered that. So we'll skip to the next question. She sent me. So, Gary, what were your favorite bands growing up? Did you always want to sing or did you kind of just fall into it? My favorite bands growing up 
um, when I was really young. My my dad, I'm in music because of my father. My father is a drummer. He was a teacher. He's taught many people. AJ Piero. He taught Rob Steele from Law and Order. Um, he taught me drums at five years old. He still teaches till this day to anybody who wants to learn. He's still teaching. He, my dad's a real good jazz drummer. He's a real great jazz drummer. But I got my music from him. My mom used to listen to Elvis every day. And to me, my influences was 70s Elvis, the big concert era, Journey, Van Halen, Bon Jovi, White Lion. <laughs> I love White Lion. I, I listen to everything. I, I even listen to, like, one of my favorite albums of all time is Phantom of the Opera. So I can listen to that on a long drive, you know. So I like a lot of different things. But growing up, it was like Journey, you know, Van Halen, Bon Jovi. White Lion was big for me. I, I absolutely loved White Lion when they came out. Um, one of my favorites. Uh, but Elvis was where it all started for me. Um, just huge Elvis fan. <laughs> Very big. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I have a wide variety of uh, different um, bands that I grew up listening to. I wasn't stuck in one genre. I, I I, I I branched out and listened to a lot of different things. That's a good thing because that's how you become, you know, you have that variety. You have that different, you know, you take from all different genres of music and you mix it together, come up with your own stuff. And I think that's a beautiful thing when you can do that. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, when I sing, it kind of comes off more of like a journey meets Van Halen, <laughs> naturally. But um, again, I, I listen to a lot of different music. Sometimes my wife makes fun of me because I'll be listening to Beth Midler. <laughs> and she'll be like, would you turn this off? And I absolutely love, I mean, Hard Live was like a girl version of David Lee Roth. Yeah, unbelievable. true. <laughs> That's right. That's true. I, 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 something I like about everybody. Elvis was just, you know, obviously, Elvis was Elvis. So, but uh, yeah, I like a lot of different things. So, oh, That's great to know. That's funny you mentioned Bad Midland. <laughs> oh, I, I like everything. I like everything. Yeah. But, you know, I get made fun of a lot. So. <laughs> I, I, I think... I, I took Dina to see she she was she was a fan of Bette Midler, and I surprised her. And I took her to the L.A. Forum, and I got a front row, uh, and we nice. we took her to the show. But what happened was she was singing "Winds Beneath My Wings." Uh, what is it? "Winds Beneath My Wings." I, I don't know what the song. Oh, "Winds Beneath yeah, My Wings." Yeah. Famous, right, right. So she's singing that song in this long red dress, and there's no security in the pit. There's nobody standing in the front row. It wasn't like a Kiss concert. It was just everyone sitting. So this woman comes from like 50 rows all the way up to the front with flowers, and she goes to hand of the roses. She takes them, and then the woman pulls Bette Midler down almost off the stage. And luckily, I was front row. I saved Bette Midler from being, you know, she couldn't even bend with this dress and heels, and I saved her from falling off the stage. You're a hero. It's so funny. Crazy. <laughs> you know, you know someone um, like Bette Midler, it's like going to an event. It's not a concert. It's an event. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. it was an event more than a concert. Believe it or not, Beth Midler is more of an event. It's like going to see a show, Broadway show, rather than a concert. It's unbelievable. You got to get them all in while you can, because they might not be here much longer, a lot of these people. So when they are out there playing, you kind of got to get in there and see them. Yeah. Good. Well, you know, Gene, Connie had a question for you, too. She wanted to know, when the songs were written, what influenced you to write each one? We're not going to go through each one, but I guess just, you know, in general. Yeah, so, you know, when it comes to songwriting for me, what will happen is uh, something I'm seeing someone experience or myself triggers uh, uh, a melody and, and, and a few lyrics. And then what happens is as soon as I pick up the guitar or the bass or something, it just comes out. Uh, and 
it usually starts with one line and the whole song comes out in that process for me. You, most of the songs that you hear uh, were written in one shot. So they weren't like, uh, you know, five years or six months. Like you hear these horror stories of some of the bands recording, you know, you know, $10 million they wasted and they spent, you know, four years trying to record an album. Most of the stuff is just came out in one shot. And then if I like it, we, uh, we dabble in it, you know, but usually the ideas for a song is uh, by experience or seeing someone else's experience, and I turn it into a song. Excellent. Well, you know, you just mentioned that you are working on new music for a new CD. You know, now you pick up the mantle, like, you know, 20, 30 years later. I mean, do you get right back into the New York Fury songwriting mode? I mean, you know, a lot of music has changed over the years. You had Carnival of Souls night and day compared to New York Fury musically. I mean, so how do you go back into that New York Fury writing style? I mean, do you know how to write for that again, or is it going to be stuff that you've come up with over the years now? Is there anything new? I mean, where do you pick up the torch for oh. that? Yeah, so uh, for me, right, like um, everything that you've ever heard from Carnival of Souls or New York Fury was written on acoustic guitar. So whatever whatever comes out of me can be directed towards either band. You know what I mean? And and, and then you know this this factors in terms of production and feel and stuff. That that's how I look at it. You know, so uh, basically New York Fury is going to be the same type of uh, genre. So it's going to be uh, you know bombastic anthem like. There's going to be ballads. It's going to be you know everything that you heard on the first record, but even better. So we're taking it up a notch. So uh, I think mean, people are going to be uh, surprised. This is going to be a very well-diverse uh, record. I'm looking forward to hearing it. I'm glad that you guys are working on it, and I can't wait. And we, you, you mentioned, like, the live front before that, you know, there are offers that are going to come in for you guys to play live. You know, the festivals are a big thing today. A lot of bands like to go over to Europe and play these festivals because they get to these big audiences in one shot. I mean, how are you looking to do the live stuff? I mean, are you going to look to try to get onto these festival circuits and just, like, hit the big shows, or are you going to just go back to the clubs again if you can? We would probably do some selective theater shows because, you know, it would be the return of Fury and, and there would be a stage show involved in it. And we and even Gary says, you know, for the first time out, we'd like to, you know, basically control the setting, uh, you know, for sound and lights the best we can. But the idea of playing a festival, you know, like a one-off festival here and there, that's that would be very cool to do. You know what I mean? So uh, if we hook up with someone, say, in Germany, that's a very big market of Japan, I think we would definitely entertain the idea uh, to play with other bands and just get in front of a, a, a larger audience. I, I think that's another option. You know what I mean? So uh, if we get offered any of that stuff, I, I think we'll do it. You know, so we're going to do selective shows in, in selective cities and we'll see where it goes from there. That'd be great. I mean, both of you guys have, you know, you've been involved in music your whole lives. You've seen the changes that have taken place since the 70s when, you know, record companies were king and everybody wanted to get signed to a major label. Then a lot of them, when they did, they weren't happy because the label dictated to them everything. Sound like this. Well, this new band came out and that's what's happening right now. I want you to sound like them. And, you know, we kind of went like full circle to where bands are now doing everything on their own again. And they're happy like that because they feel like they have complete control over the music. But for bands that came from our generation where you wanted to get signed to that big label, is that still something that you would be interested in? doing or are you happy you're doing it on your own today uh, i think on, on our own is, is, is we have a sense of freedom right gary to do it on our yeah, own i mean i i agree with that uh, i don't think a label as is, is as important as it used to be um you know with with multimedia and you know i gotta say like i gotta give a shout out to radio stations like yourself and 107 you know you guys are are playing this stuff so really, like, you guys are the ones making it happen. Um, 
there's so much great technology out there today that you don't really need the big money backing for a recording. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I could be wrong, but I don't feel a record label as is as important as it used to be. Because you can achieve a lot of this stuff on your own if you have someone who's got a good ear in the recording process and knows what they're doing, you know, and make it sound professional. Um, you know, a lot of that can be done in-house within the band itself. So, um, yeah, so, I mean, if a, if, a, if a deal came along with this kind of music, I'm sure we would, again, I'm sure we would put our heads together and make something happen, absolutely. I wouldn't turn anything down. Yeah. Uh, but if it doesn't happen and we want to put a new album out, we can't. You know, That's we don't true. need the label. If we, you know, like if Gene and I say, let's do another one, we're doing well. When we put it out, we can do it. We don't have to say, well, we don't have a label. If it doesn't, we don't need it. So with multimedia and, and the uh, technology the way it is today, it, it's achievable. Yeah, absolutely achievable. Yeah, no, it really is. And, you know, what is most labels today, you know, like the mid-sized labels, all they really want are is distribution sites. They want you to come into them with everything done, the recording done, the package done. It's just handed to them, and they just distribute it. So it's like, but you could do that on your own today right. also and save a lot of that, you know, the money, keep a lot of that money you put into it. But, you know, as for as many things that have changed over the last couple of decades musically, a lot of things are still the same. And you guys know what it's like when you have to buy onto a show or buy onto a tour, and that still happens today, or having to sell tickets, you know, uh, buy tickets and sell them and get on. Nothing's really changed. And I know years ago, you guys were going to buy onto a big tour for like 10 grand, if I remember hearing the story right. I'm assuming that probably would have been with Kiss. Well, it, it, the actual story is uh, it was to open up for Kiss at the Ritz two nights. And we had the inside word that they were playing it. And we had a, a, a guy that was the helping manager at the time and, an, and another famous guy that was working with bands approached them to open up. Now, Eric Carr was a friend of mine, so he, he was actually planning on producing New York Fury. And he was, he you know, sadly he got sick later on and, and yeah. we didn't really get to finish it. But, uh, but we was we, we we wanted to open up for Kiss at the Ritz. Now we were at our high point. We were already playing theaters and we, arena, and we were doing so great. And we figured let's play the double shot with Kiss at the Ritz. And then the press kit went to them and, and the recordings, and then they didn't go for it. And, and and usually most bands that opened up for Kiss, like a Black and Blue, they paid to open up for Kiss. See, a lot of people don't realize a lot of opening acts pay to be opening. Yeah. Yep. And everyone thinks, you know, it's, a, it's perception and illusion. If you're on the radio and you're opening up for a band like Kiss, you're a rock star. And people gravitate towards that. It's the whole fame thing, right? So, but they don't realize that, you know, to, they had to pay five to 7000 a night to get that exposure. And then they would hope to sell merchandise. And then when the merchandise would be sold, like a band like Wasp, Kiss would cut off their merchandise sales. As soon as Wasp was over, they had a few minutes to sell. And that was it. They took their tables down. So at the end of the night, people could only buy a Kiss shirt. And yeah. Wasp was out selling Kiss. So there's a lot of games that go on in the industry, and it's very cutthroat. It's not what everyone thinks it is. You know what I mean? And Fury came across a lot of that, where famous acts were kind of like, uh, I don't want to say scared, or they just wouldn't let us uh, open up. And, 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 you know, and, and, and that, that's what happened also with some labels. We were working with Frankie LaRocca and Atlantic Records. He signed the Spin Doctors, so Carnival Souls was offered a deal too. They wanted to own all the publishing and the merch, and we were like, "Whoa!" You know, what I mean, that's like you know. And uh, Bill Donnelly from Laughing Dog Studios, he actually went to the meeting. So uh, it was a you know, Atlantic Records wanted the music. They were looking for like a System of a Down, Godsmack type band, 
but with a shell. And that's what Carnival Souls was in that vein. And uh, we almost had that deal, too. And it's all about control and taking the money from the bands. It's, it's kind of a terrible industry. Yeah. Oh, it really is. I mean, giving up the publishing years ago was, you know, was a, a lot of bands did do it because they just wanted that label. I don't know if they were thinking ahead. You guys always thought about the business part of it. I give you credit for that. Where so many of the bands years later, like, well, how come that record hasn't been out like twenty years or a re-release? Like, we don't own the, we don't own the rights to it. We can't put it out. We got to go re-record it to get it out there. And and it's not the same as the original album. But you guys thought about all that, but was there ever a time where you said, "I'm willing to sell everything and just give it up just to get that record out," or did you always stand your ground and say, "You know, the publishing is ours." Well, yeah, for, for me, I, I noticed a lot of guys that had a, a gold or platinum album were broke. So I, they, they would tour, you know, I talked to Gary Newman once. I was at an event and he was playing and I was working the event. And uh, he said he, he had a number one hit song. He toured the whole world. And by the time he got back to his apartment, it was all over. After a couple of years, he was broke. Because the label took it. Oh, you know, you had a limo here, you had a party there, plane ticket here. And the bands, they don't really make this, you know, it's a VH1 story, you know, behind yeah. the scenes, they wound up broke. And I didn't want to become like that. You know what I mean? And I knew how much money it would take to break a band. So, I mean, I maybe I made a, a bad choice by not giving it away. But, you know, you, you, we just can't tell now, you know what I mean? But I, I think, you know, I wanted to stand our, our ground and try to get the most we could out of a deal instead of touring three or four years and being owned. A lot of bands owe a lot of money. You know what I mean? Oh. Some bands can't get back together because they owe money. Absolutely, and you know, in the eighties, the mon- the money was there to be made if you can make it. Today, it's a different, it's a different ball game right now. It's, it doesn't even really seem to be about the money anymore. At least not for for a lot of bands. They just want to get out there and play again, and they're happy to do shows here and there. You know, you have those elite bands like you said, Kiss. You have Metallica, ACDC, Guns N' Roses. Those guys are always going to be arena bands and play there and make their money. You know, they've they've got to that point. But a lot of bands that just can't get there anymore, and it seems like it's getting harder and harder. I mean, when those guys are gone, I mean, Kiss is retiring again. I don't know if it's actually gonna happen they retire every couple of years but you know when these bands do stop playing who's going to be the next bands playing at madison square garden playing at nassau coliseum who are these bands and you know i always say that i always say that like where the music industry is gone there's there's no more bands like a kiss or a bon jovi coming out you know now you have like single artists like you know one guy name or one girl name you know or you know i mean Punk pop kind of made a little bit of a comeback with um, with um, Machine Gun Kelly, but I mean, I, I think that might be the closest thing to like a big rock. I don't know. Like the Queens are gone, the Kisses are going to be gone. You know, um, you're right. I always say like, you know, um, there's there's no more there's no more kids learning guitar and bass, and you know, everything's on the computer now, and. Um, uh, just it's changed so much. I always say the same thing. Who's there's going to be no more like you know? When was the last time you heard of a new band come out that was like a band? You know, Greta Van Fleet um, was like the last it, one that had promise. It, I thought you know, I been Greta Van like, the very last Zeppelin sound, but I thought they had promise. Even them, they seem to be struggling to get anywhere. Yeah, yeah. It, it all it all comes. It's all down to the industry and perception. Like say say we took a band like Fury for example, and you, Mike, you were the a big money man, and you uh, paid off all the FM stations, every, and you got them on M- MTV, and you had them open up for Motley Crue. You would see a big uh, resurgence for that band, that exposure. It's all about money and exposure. So labels have pulled away from rock bands, and they're putting songs and beats on. And like Gary said, yeah. like just singles. 
and the, the the labels are very foolish. You have to nurture bands and break them, and you can get them to be like U2, and you can get them to be like a Van Halen, but it takes like two or three albums and a lot of money, but it will, but they want everything instant. You know, there's A&R guys that get fired in a month if, if the album doesn't sell. Oh, absolutely. And there's famous bands, there's bands like Buck Cherry, uh, uh, Larry Mason said on TV, he goes, oh, they played all over the world. They can they can barely sell fourteen thousand units, and, and that's that's crazy when you think about it. So it's you know the fans too. You know I always encourage people if you're going to pay to see a tribute band or a cover band, and you're dancing around like fools to these cover bands, and you're drinking and buying tickets fifteen twenty dollars, pick up an original band's CD, support them, and it'll bounce back. Like vinyl record sales are up, so go and support original music for these new young bands instead of just everything being a cover band world you know and uh, and then maybe the genre will survive it because it is kind of sad that there's no new Molly Crew there's no new uh, you know Led Zeppelin no. there's no there's, there's never going to be another Judas Priest that's kind of sad gotta, when you think about it and you got to remember too like let's say there is a band that's going to do great right even even bands that have done great like the Bon Jovi's and the, and, and the bands like in that level you put a new album out and everybody gets it for free these days. You know, you sell one and then it's on YouTube or it's free download. And the next thing you know, so a lot of bands just put singles out now. They don't even do full length albums anymore. They'll do like a single. Like Brian Adams is, is known for that. He'll drop a single on a greatest hits album and, and that'll be it, you know, yeah. uh, because record sales are down just because of the way it is now. Nobody's going, you know, when we were kids, Gene and I talked about it all the time, we'd wait online for the new Journey album or the new, the new Kiss album. We'd wait online, yep. you know? <laughs> yeah. And uh, that magic that magic is gone. You go in the store, you get the album. It was a big vinyl album with pictures and something to hold, and it smelled like a new album. And now you get a download that sounds like it was recorded underwater because it's an MP3 and, you know, local. I don't know. I just... Not a big fan of the No, you're right. Of, of, That's the way know, the world it, is it, today. It's, it's crazy, yeah. but, you know, like you were saying about the A&R, like, you know, most of these labels today, they don't even have A&R departments anymore. They were like the scouts, right. you know, for like, like, in baseball, like for the minor leagues. They go out there and they scout you, they, they nurture you, they get you into the minors, they bring you up to the majors, and, you know, if you were good, you were going to make it. That doesn't exist anymore. And, and, and it's crazy. And like you said, because of the internet, you put a song out, people play two seconds of like, nah, that's not for me, and they move on. They don't even give it a chance anymore. I mean, the, the, the attention right. span is so short today. It's not even funny. But back then, we put that record on, and because we paid 6 $7 for it, we were going to play that record through and through, whether we liked it or not, until we learned to like it. Yeah, I, I remember getting a number of the beast like that. I, I was, like, blown away. The album cover. And... But the good thing about what you guys are doing, the 107 skaters and you guys of the world, is if people have a platform to go and hear it again or hear it, you know, they're going to go back. They're going to they're, like this station plays cool music. You know, um, I, I think it helps. So you guys are a big part of even the success Gene and I are having with the, with the resurgence of the Fury album because there's, there's stations like you guys that are on it. You guys are doing it, you know, and um, I think it's great. I, I think that can only help. I you hope know, so. I mean, people are just, you know, we tune in and we're like, there it is. It's there. Yeah. You guys are keeping it alive. I've been charting you guys every week on the NACC, the college radio charts. I've been charting you guys every week in the top 10 since the, the record came out. So I don't know if it helps or not, but I keep doing it anyway because it's well-deserved. But, you know, kind of going back to the to the mid-'80s, maybe towards the late-'80s, I mean, when did, when did it finally come to an end? Was it 89, 90, 91? And what was the final straw that broke the camel's back? 
it, it was a combination of uh, for, for us. It was. 1990 going, you know, into 91, uh, the finances dried up and then changing band members and then grunge was coming, right? Yeah. So you, you had that whole move. It was a combination of all those things. And I was catching wind of it from bands that were once hot, like a band like Poison, right? They played the same arena as us in Puerto Rico and we matched the same ticket sales as them. But I noticed that they were, even though they had a hit song at the time, it was starting to change. The God, your Guns and Roses, right, and then Nirvana after that. So they, you know, they wound up playing like the Palladium. You know what I mean? And they were once an arena band. You know what I mean? So I knew it, it was over at that point because the industry was making it over. Uh, you know, once the industry changed the God, they weren't pushing the warrants anymore. No more videos on MTV. No more magazines. You know, it, it's like advertising. You know. If I gave you a million dollars and, and you opened up a restaurant and you started advertising, you're going to get business. And that's how it was for the grunge era. They they pushed that narrative. And now when people look back, the grunge era really wasn't that good. They're saying, wow, I really do miss White Snake and Iron Maiden. And you know what I mean? So, And look who's selling out the stadiums, right? Guns yeah. N' Roses, Metallica, Kiss. I mean, look at the prices of the Kiss tickets, right? So, They're crazy. You know, what's really bigger, you know? It's all perception. Uh, it really is. We're just talking about, like, you know, selling out the show and stuff. Like, Godsmack, a great band, you know, they came around maybe 25 years ago or so. They just had to cancel the South American tour because they couldn't sell enough tickets. I'm talking, this is Godsmack. They're one of the wow. bigger bands in the, you know, like in the next generation of metal bands. And they had to cancel their tour. They're like, we can't, they, they wow. couldn't sell enough tickets. I'm like, how does that happen when, like you said, you do, you have, a, you have cover bands going down there doing covers of other bands had, and they're, they're selling out shows like crazy. But yet this band yeah, who's put out one great record after the next can't sell it. I'm like, it boggles my mind. Yeah, it's kind of sad. But I, I think also the, uh, you know, the genre that we love, you know, and you is back now. So people are looking for uh, arena rock. That's what we call it, arena rock. Yep. So the gods match were more like droning and more dark, right? But people want uh, a Motley Crue new song, a Bon Jovi new song, and a, a new Kiss song, but they're not getting it. So that's why I think the success of Fury on a small level, people that have been buying our bundles and the merchandise and the posters and all that stuff and the vinyl records, we're selling because people really want that stuff again. They're just not getting it. You know what I mean? So I think Godsmack is a lack of songwriting. They brought in a lot of ghostwriters to help them the last few albums I heard. They're just not getting the, the they're not hitting the nerve with the people, uh, yeah. song wise, you know. And I think that's you know, that's what it really is with them, you know. True. I mean, you know, everything kind of comes full circle. And it was about twenty years ago where Austin started to you know come back again a little bit. It was a small doses here and there. Then each year it started growing again, getting a little bit bigger. And I think we're finally you know we, nobody's ever going to get back to nineteen eighty five ever again. But I think we're all in a good place right now where bands can play and people coming out to see them because they you know most of these people the kids are grown up they want to get out now they want to have a good time go see the shows again. They're buying you know, vinyl is back. People are buying record. I mean I never thought in my life I'd be able to buy another vinyl record after nineteen eighty. But I'm buying. I don't even buy CDs. I'm buying everything on vinyl today because I, you know, I still have my record player from 1982. Yeah, the vinyl sounds good. It's a warmer tone, I think. Yeah, too. absolutely. Yeah. Well, that, that was a whole thing by the labels too. You know that when they made CDs, they told everyone this is better than vinyl. So what happened was, say, let's pick a great band like Gary likes and I like Van Halen. We, me, Gary and I owned every Van Halen record. Then me and Gary and everyone else went out and bought the CDs. Yeah. <laughs> so they made millions off the, the American people, the worldwide audience. Everyone re-bought everything. Now the labels are saying, oh, vinyl's better. 
you know, go back to vinyl. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a money-making thing, you know? CDs yep. were never better than vinyl. No, I'm you glad know? I never got rid of my vinyl records and have to buy them again. I, I never got rid of them. <laughs> I always kept them. It took me 22 years yeah, to find the needle to replace the needle on my turntable, but you know, I managed to get that. The only cool thing I like about CDs and stuff is a lot of bands remastered old recordings and put them out on CD, like the Beatles. And if you catch any of those, you hear things you didn't hear originally. Um, you know, and it and I, I kind of like that. I, there was a couple of bands that did that. They remastered their album and they added stuff to it and took stuff. It just you, know, you get a better, um, a little bit of a clearer picture. You know, and yeah. you, you, the only good thing about CDs is you got more songs on the CD. A lot of people don't realize back in the day with vinyl, um, if vinyl only had five songs on each side as an average, right? You'd have five on the front and five on the back. Yeah. The reason for that is the more songs you put on a vinyl, you started losing quality. A lot of people don't realize that. But the first thing you lose is low end. So if you have an album that's got a lot of songs on one vinyl, it's going to sound thin. Like if you remember Journey Captured, I don't know if you remember Journey yep. Captured. That album was a very thin-sounding album because they had a two-hour show on two vinyl discs, on two vinyl um, records. Um, but if you now get it on CD and put it in your car, it's real fat and full. Reason being is the longer that you put, the more stuff you put on vinyl, you start losing quality. So bands had to negotiate, all right, what's going to be on it, what's not going to be on it. You know, um, and a lot of songs ended up on the cutting room floor because of that. Whereas CD, they were able to, that's why you see a lot of these reissues with bonus tracks on CD. Because now they can put it out. Songs that, you know, maybe didn't make it in the 80s and the 90s on vinyl. You start losing low end, you start losing quality. So that was the only negative with vinyl. I agree, vinyl sounded warmer. Um, CDs came out and it had a real digital harsh sound to it. You know, that's why when you have like recording gear, you got these plugins that mimic tubes. <laughs> you know, yeah, 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 they do. Yeah, you're right. And uh, you, yeah, you, you go back to the '80s when you're recording. I mean, when you guys recorded in the '80s, all those songs was it done on reels back then, like on the reel-to-reel tapes? Yes. yes. Today everything's I, digital. I mean, you know, it's all digital today. When I first met Gene, I said, "Yeah, I got a studio. I've been I've been recording my whole life. Um, and just even when I was younger, um, I would take two tape decks and line them up and." go back and forth, but I had an 8-track open reel when I met you in a 4-spec, and uh, it was great. Yeah, we, we, we would record band practice and record... <laughs> we would record yeah, so, um, you know, so we, 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 we've always been... I've, I've been recording for many years, so um, I'm pretty experienced when it comes to the recording process, um, you know, so right now I kind of do like a hybrid. I still use a regular mixer. Yes, I'm recording on computer, but uh, it's not all computer. I still hands-off play, and I'm still using a mixer, so it's kind of like a hybrid way of yeah. recording. It's not full digital. So. There are some bands like you know, like Zach Wild from Ozzy's band and you know Black Label Society. He still records on reel to reel today. He still records those old Ampeg reels. He refuses to go digital. He just doesn't like the sound yeah. of it, and he does everything on reels. Yeah, he, he probably gets a nicer tone. Yeah, Perry releases. Steve Perry released an album, and I think it was 2018, right? Uh, Traces. It was done on open reel, two-inch open reel. Um, and then it was bounced to digital. So he, he also did like a hybrid thing, too, as well. You know, he wanted that warm sound from tape, so. Yeah. Uh, guys, before I let you go, I want to play some music, but I want to ask you, how did you wind up getting to Puerto Rico and playing such a big show? How did that come about? That had to be massive back in the day. You know, what happened was we would, we did a show. Um, we were already playing theaters 
uh, and what happened was a promoter heard of us down in Puerto Rico. So he sent someone up to come see us, and then we, we did a double bill with Skid Row. Uh, it was their first theater show. Uh, they, they weren't even known yet. They, they, you know, they had the deal with Bon Jovi, and they were going on tour, but they needed a, a send-off gig. So uh, the, the, the theater owner approached me and said, uh, Skid Row wants to play the theater, but they don't know if they're going to do well. So they want to bring you guys on because you played here six or seven times. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll definitely play with those guys. Uh, I, I said, uh, how much? And he goes, oh, we're not going to pay you. <laughs> I go, you're not going to pay me? I go, we, we play here six, seven times. He goes, oh, they don't want to pay you. They just want you to play. So I said, I go, this, I go, Phil Neary was his name. Uh, I said, uh, you know this is going to sell out in record time. And he goes, oh, we don't think it's going to sell out that fast. And I said, I'll make you a bet. So I bet him uh, $2,700. It was a random number. I, I bet him in the, in the lobby of the, the Brook Theater. You know, months before the show, and he says, "If you sell out in record time, I'll give you that twenty-seven hundred dollars." And they put the tickets on sale. It sold out probably in an hour. Wow! And I said, "See, I go. Let's add more nights." And they wanted to, but Skid Row was, you know, already ready to go hit the road. But you know, they they had no song on the radio yet, and they had no MTV video, so it wasn't the you know legendary Skid Row that we know today. You know, they were like on our level. You know what I mean? And it, it was a great show. And th that promoter seen us there uh his, his guy seen us and he said i want to i want to take you guys and bring you to the arena in uh, coliseum in puerto rico and uh and we, and we said fine we, we, we negotiated i flew down uh for a two-week promotional tour we, we did tv radio uh, you, you name it we did it all and then the band came down like a month or so later and we, we played a, a couple of shows and it was great you know it was that phenomenal that is fantastic. Guys, listen, I'm a big fan of you. I have one more interview to go. Claude Chanel was supposed to be on tonight, but he got stuck in the airport, so we're going to do it next week. But I'm such a big fan. I can't wait for this new music to come out. When it does, why don't you come back on here again, and we'll do this all over, and we'll continue the story and pick up where we left off and talk about the future. That would be awesome. Great. Thanks for having us. Hey, it's my pleasure, guys. Such a big fan. I'm going to play play the game. I'm going to do some uh, Carnival of Souls and something else, and we'll get to our next guest. But, guys, the best of luck with the new music. I can't wait to hear it. Mike, you're the best. Thank you, buddy. Thank you, take guys. Care. Gene, Gary, take care. Have a All great right. night, my friends. Bye-bye. Take care. Have a good night. You Bye -bye. too. Take care. All right, let's get on some more New York Fury for everybody. Let's play the game. Like 
from the 90s. Oh, I can't wait for new music from New York Fury. It's going to be fantastic. All right, before we get to Steve Zing from Danzig and Sam Hain and Black 29 and about 100 other bands that he's played in over the years, we'll be talking, we got to do our demolition segment. Let's do that. Get it out of the way. We'll play two demo cuts today. First one is by a band called St. Lucena. They were from, uh, they were like, I don't know if they were all the way upstate New York, maybe in Mount Vernon, New York, uh, but they were up in northern New York. They were a really great band. Only had two demo tapes out back in the day. Uh, 84, both of them came out. Not much else came out of the band after that, but Greg Livesay, who has been Livesay, played with them. I don't think he was actually on any of the demo tapes. Uh, I think he kind of joined the band afterwards for some live shows. They were a solid act, man, and they really should have went places, but... Like I said, nothing came out of them after these demos. So let's get on the song called Call the Surgeon off the second demo tape. And then we'll do a little either breather right after that. And we'll get to the interview with Steve. Here you go. Call the 
All right, Eva Breva. That band came out of the remains of Sneak Attack, a great band from Bayonne, New Jersey. Uh, we had Mark Mary on the show years ago, and I got real close to kind of reuniting that band. I was hoping it would have happened with Sneak Attack, but it didn't. But this band came right after them. Uh, it was most of the guys from there. The first demo, which was this one, uh, Dream Death Dream, the song War Torn, uh, they had a different singer in the band at the time. I think his name was Laszlo or something, if I can remember, or Lozlo. Something like that. But then uh, Mac, who sang with Sneak Attack, joined the band, and he was looking for the second demo tape. And something I didn't even realize, that Arky and Steel put out a, a record called Death Dream two years ago with all of these songs on there, some other stuff. I had no idea it even came out. I had stopped doing the live show at that time. And I just lost track of all these you know, these reissues. And I have to go pick this one up. I have to reach out to Arky and Steel and see if I can get a copy of it. Hopefully it's still around. And maybe I'll reach out to the guys getting back on the show and work on that reunion one more time. <laughs> Let's see what happens. All right. Let's get to Steve Zing, drummer from Samhain, bass player for Danzig. And he's got Black 29 going right now. Tommy Victor plays on this record from Prong. Uh, so many people on this album. You know, Tommy Victor, everybody knows him from Prong, but to me, he was the great sound man from CBGBs who made my band Stillborn sound beautiful. <laughs> he was a great sound man and a good guy. All right, here you go. Let's get Steve on the line. Hey, Steve, this is Mike. How are you? Mike, how you doing? Sorry for the delay. That's okay. Like, That's the way life goes, right? Our, our weather here is like fucking crazy, and my power kept going in and out, which my phone, my phone goes through the Wi-Fi here, so it's like, Every time I had to reboot the whole friggin' thing, it's crazy. I know it's not. I'm in Staten Island, New York, so I'm not far from you. I, I know the weather's bad over okay, here today. Yeah, yeah. So we we got all this wind, and it's making everything. The power go in and out. It's crazy. Don't worry. It's this. This is part of life. <laughs> Where else we gotta go? Yeah. I <laughs> hey, know, man. But but listen, I gotta tell you, such a big fan of yours. Going back to the morning noise days. That's a long. It really feels a long time ago now. That I look at everything that you've put out since then, but. Man, the new Black 29 is just killer. Thank you so much, Mike. I appreciate it. What a job. I mean, it's about as dark and haunting as I would expect from you. <laughs> you live a very dark life, uh-huh. musically anyway, you know, not in, not personally, but musically. And, and it really shows on this record. I mean, and what a great bunch of cover tunes, too. Thank you. Thank you. That yeah, was a blast doing this. It really was. So how, how did this whole record come about? I mean, I know it's the second album that you guys put out under this banner. And, you know, I, I get, you know, waiting around to do all the music with other people could be really daunting sometimes because you're on their schedule and it's their thing and they get other things going. So is, was this a project that you decided to take on just to keep you busy in the meantime or are you looking to do more with it? No, we're, we're going to be doing live shows with it. Great. Uh, it was always meant to be a band. Uh, how it came about was we had some previous bands that myself and Dan were in together. And what happened was, a few of the members decided that they no longer wanted to do original music. Um, because let's face it, this is the music business. And, you know, the saying, here today, gone later today. <laughs> and there, you know, there are, there are people that just don't want to wait around. And it's hard to keep a band together. So Dan and I looked at each other and said, okay, uh, now it's just me and him. I guess we're going to have to replace people and look finding people that's that's a tough one too so he's like you know i do play guitar so i'm like all right so because previous it was just you know him on bass and we didn't write together 
So I said, okay, let's try writing a song together. So we did, and fortunately, I own my own studio. We wrote and recorded it, and we looked at each other and go, wow, not so bad. So let's continue. And that's how it really, it wasn't something that was born out of something just to keep me busy. It was something that was meant to be a band all along. It's just that, you know, we decided that, okay, we can do this ourselves. I don't have to wait for other people. That's and definitely the hardest part, I think, is waiting on other people because, you, you know, you, you want to be busy and active. Like you said, like you said, here today, gone later today. Yeah. So I'm just, you know, I'm just really um, blessed that, uh, that, again, that we can record on our own time anytime we want. And Dan has become one of my favorite guitar players <laughs> because I didn't even realize that he uh, – you know, he played guitar as well as he does. And it shows on the record. Plus, you have another great player in there, you know, Tommy Victor. You know, it seems like it's like oh, get all the friends together sometimes and let's see what we can come up with. Um, i tell you, you know, having Tommy on here was was great. And, of course, Johnny Kelly, you know, a former Staten Island person. That's right. Brooklyn, Staten Island. He's all over the place. Uh, but, uh, yeah, having those two guys on there, I mean, what could be better? Not much. And I, I think back, like, what a great career you had musically. And like I said, you know, I remember getting the Dawn of the Dead EP. I think it was like 83, 84 uh, for Morning Noise. And when I look back at everything, I mean, The Undead, you know, Doomtree, Son of Satan, and then, you know, the Sam Hain and Danzig, there was always this, like, line of connection between you and members of the Misfits from really – from your high school days, if even maybe before then, personally or in music, and it just kind of continued out your whole career. Whether it was you know Todd Youth from Son of Sam who went on to play on the Danzig, I mean, there's always that connection there. Yeah, it's kind of interesting how it all tied into into one. Uh, I think you know being friends with Doyle from kindergarten through high school, which is how I was introduced to Glenn. And, you know, obviously, uh, you know, uh, forming Sam Hain with Glenn and, of course, going on to Danzig, you know, it's kept kept us all in that that group. And, of course, meeting Johnny and Tommy and Todd and everybody else that's uh, I've had, a, a, you know, I've lived a blessed life for sure. There's some great stuff there. I mean, you know, you always dabble between the hardcore punk scene and the metal scene, and sometimes it won't combine together. But there's always been that one continuous thing, which has been like this horror, this dark element between, you know, your lyrics and, and your music. What is it about that style, that genre, that just, you know, turns you on and makes you want to do more of it? You know, to me, it's more reality than anything. I'm not a political person. I don't give a crap about politics, left, right, center, who cares. You know, it's not for me or you. Uh, so I'm not going to, I'm not a political person. I'm not going to write about politics, about religion per se, because, you know, to each his own. Yeah. And I'm not here to, to sway anybody's thoughts. Uh, I write kind of more emotional based. And maybe a lot of that seems darker because, look, we live in a dark world. Uh, you know, I feel bad for people that are born today and kids that are growing up, including my own kids, because it's the world is not for the for the weak. Uh, we're we 
constantly brainwashed of of all this crap that's going on, wars and all kinds of shit. And and uh, I think it affects every one of us in a different way. And I think for those who write, you know, sometimes it comes out different. Uh, I don't have, you know, uh, again, I'm not going to sing about politics. That's not my thing. But I think just overall, it it kind of guides you in a way where it becomes a darker place in your mind. Well, like you said, it's a definitely a darker world we live in today. And I, I, you know, we're the same age. We come from the same generation. We grew up in the seventies, running around playing, and going into the eighties. And it was a different world sure. back then. I mean, I, I feel the same way when I talk about my children and everything else. I mean, what do you think is the cause of this? I mean, it seems like it's become more prevalent over the last 10 years. You think it's this technological world we live in with this, with social media and, you know, TikTok and Instagram and all these things, or is it just the outside world in general that's so different than when we were kids and we were out in the street all the time playing? Well, they've, they've taken everybody off the street because you can't be on the street anymore. Uh, it's, a, it's a different world and it's, it's, a, it's a sad world. We've, as much as we can communicate Right over, you know, like this, like we're doing now, or text or Zoom, we are a disconnected world. We don't have a real connection. Most people are connect connecting via text. That's not real. There's no emotion in a text, and sometimes it comes out the wrong way. I think, you know, us being kids, like you said, going outside and playing. Well, you had interaction. You have you have memories that will never fade away as your childhood, right? Because those are real lasting memories. You're not going to get that memory from a text that someone sent to you. True. It's not going to happen. So we're living in a a connected but disconnected world. It is crazy. It is. It's crazy in a way, but it is what it is, and that's how we are. But you know, Steve, getting back to Black Twenty Nine. Now you're saying that this is going to, you know, get out there and play live. Who who are you looking to get into the band to play with you? Because you got, you know, you got Dan, you got yourself. Who, who are you looking to round out the group? We have a few different people in mind. I can't name them. They are very interested, and uh, I can't wait for it to happen because it's really, really going to be great. I guarantee you. Uh, I can imagine. If you're putting it together, I know it will. And, you know, going back to the first record and then the new one, The Waiting, you know, kind of like, you know, they follow a line, but yet they're kind of night and day, too, from Love and Anger to this one, The Waiting. This one's really different. Um, I think this one was more... um, The first one was very much inspired by... um, broken relationships I think this one is more about the channeling the energy of all what's you know what's all around me uh, the waiting per se that was my kind of ode to the 80s kind of um, if you remember back in the 80s they had this whole back cave type uh, movement and that was kind of my ode to some of these darker clubs that were open back in the day, like Dance Terry and whatnot. Uh, and during the recording of that song, uh, Dan was doing the, the guitar lead, and he kept having issues. 
And I, I'm like, come on, dude, you know, what's your problem? Because when my arm hurts, my arm hurts. I'm like, you could do it, you know. So he, he got through it, and then a few days later, he found that he was in heart failure. The whole oh, time. man. <laughs> oh, so, God. I don't mean to laugh, I'm but, yelling you know. at the poor guy. <laughs> I'm yelling at the poor guy, and he's in heart failure and didn't even know it and wound up having to have a quadruple bypass. Holy cow. <laughs> yeah. That's unbelievable. So, yeah. So it, it, it uh, all worked out. I hear that. You know, when you, when you form a band or a project, you're doing anything new or different, is there a distinct vision of where you want it to go and why do you want it to be? Or does it just kind of come out of, like, you know, what you're writing at the time or who you're working with? You know, I think it, I think it, it's, it's really all about uh, the time. I don't really sit there and go, okay, I'm going to write a song like this. Never had an intention any intention to do that. And I think, you know, I, I, I write from a, a melody first. Some people write with a riff. I have, the, I have the melody in my head, and then I hum that to Dan, and it's up to Dan to, to decipher what that actually means in my head. I hear the song completed before it's even recorded. Yeah. So that's just one of, you know, everybody has different styles, but... As far as like a subject, or it's it really comes out of whatever way I'm feeling at that given moment. Was songwriting something that came relatively easy to you? Was it something that you really had to work on, like you know, to kind of get it down? You know, I I think that um, my inspiration for songwriting, I come from a simplistic background, right? I grew up on punk rock in the fifties music. Kiss and Elvis, and but my background, you know, was simplicity. I think teaming up with a person like Dan Tracy, who comes from more of a prog background, when we married the, the my simplistic thoughts and his more of his advanced musical thoughts, it comes together and creates what it is, because Dan knows how to push, especially. Like, Dan's great for vocal production. He knows how to push to get the most out of me. He goes, no, nah, that's not it. You know, and he'll, he'll go on and on. He's really good with hearing certain things to add to the music to make it, you know, what it is. Because, again, he comes from more of that, where it, uh, that prog thing where one song is 10 minutes long. And I'm like, dude. Please shut this off. It's terrible. <laughs> Look, man, I have ADD, so I can't I can't bear to listen to any of that crap. And not that it's crap. I shouldn't say that. It's just, uh, you know, you know that, that phrase, don't bore us, get to the chorus. Yeah. <laughs> well, in some frog stuff, there's no chorus. And I'm like, come on. What's going on here? <laughs> it's true. It's like a never-ending It's like a never-ending song. <laughs> Keeps going on and yeah, on. Exactly. Let's see, exactly. you know, I know you as a drummer from the beginning, then a bass player. Did you did you always have a habit for playing both, or did one come much later than the other? No, bass came much much later. It was only because uh, Glenn had called me up and wanted to do a Sam Hain reunion in 1999, and um, with myself in London, May, <clears throat> and. 
uh, wound up that I played bass on the songs that London uh, played drums on, and then vice versa. So I had to teach bass. Actually, Glenn taught me how to play bass. My bass playing is much different than most bass players. Uh, I'm not a technical person by any means. Uh, I come from the from the uh, <laughs> learning from the greats like Dee Dee Ramone, who I thought was amazing, and Glenn Danzig taught me. You know, this is it's all downstrokes. It's you know, it's hard, and and that's the way I play. Do you think too many plays today, or even on the past, they they forget about you know playing with feeling? They want to be too technical, and it's really all about the feel. I'm not a technical person. You know, I, you don't need to be technical to be emotional. And to me, unless I feel emotion in a song, I don't care about how much musical masturbation somebody could do in a song. It means nothing to me. If I can't feel it personally, even my own songs, then how is anybody else going to feel it? Again, you can look at a player and go, wow, look at, listen to his technique. Okay, but without a song, you've got nothing. It's just a bunch of riffs, and I'm not a I'm not a riff person. I don't. It that doesn't affect me. I like melody. I like harmony. You know, that's that's what to me. That's you know, give me give me the hook. Yeah, I don't I, I don't care about technicality. You can I, look the Ramones wrote some of the best music that you still hear. Hey ho, let's go. How simple is that, but how contagious is that? It's absolutely right? true. No, I couldn't agree with you more. It's all about the feel, in my opinion. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Exactly. Hey, well, Steve, I could talk to you forever. I'm not going to keep you because I know you got a whole bunch of these things to do today. I'll let you get back on track with everybody else after me. So they don't blame me for holding them up. But, I mean, what oh, an amazing yeah. job on the waiting. I mean, I'm hoping that, you know, you get this thing going this year and get out there live. I'd love to come see you play, especially that because I'm in the air. Absolutely. It's hard. It's not easy to get there, but I'm looking forward to it, my friend. Well, Mike, thank you so much for your time. It's my pleasure, Steve. The best of luck with Black Twin Night. You know, anything you do, I'm always there for you. So I'm looking forward to a lot more over the next few years. You got it, Mike. Thank you so much. Have Take care, day. my friend. You too. Bye-bye. Take care.
understand There's a tiny device inside of me I'm a self-destructing man There's a red under my bed And there's a little green man in my head She said you're not going crazy You're just a bit sad Twisted a man in your blood by the kinks is actually by black 29 i should have played one of the original songs but the promoting this song right now what a great cover of the kinks destroy feature tommy vector and johnny kelly all right we're gonna wrap it up here tonight who do we have on next week hey next week we got vinnie moore of ufo on so don't forget to tune in for that and i believe jim harris of emissary is going to be on the show uh his person set it up but that guy's very unreliable so i don't know if it's actually going to happen or not but we have live christine waiting in the wings so Don't fret. We have two guests on next week. All right, everybody. Have a great week. Take care. I want to thank Gene and Gary from New York Ferry for being on tonight's show and Steve Zing also. Thank you guys very much. How about we wrap it up here with a little Witchfinder General, Satan's Children. Take care, everybody. Have a great week, and I'll see you next Sunday night.
Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.